Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wellston, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wellston, please visit our website at fbcwellston.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. So we are going to, well, I don't know where we're going to start at tonight. So I've got my Bible open to 1 Samuel chapter 16. However, it kind of depends on where you all take the conversation. So sometimes sometimes I have kind of like a plan for like where the, the conversation goes, but then sometimes um, there's unexpected things come up. So <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, uh, we came in here on a Sunday night. And I asked the question about worry or anxiety. And I asked the question, is worry or anxiety, is it a sin? And so we worked through several passages of Scripture talking about where we see anxiety or worry in Scripture. And whether it was a sin, whether it wasn't a sin. And I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think we kind of landed, concluded that the presence or the instance of worry and anxiety anxiety was not a sin, but left unchecked or given control and power over your life, it can lead to sin. And it can lead to wrongful, unbiblical behavior or thinking. Is that... Is that Kind of where we're at? Alright, so when we were talking about that and we were having the conversation about worry and anxiety, um, the goal was not to shame anybody or to judge anybody, but just to say, what does the Bible say about it? During the course of the conversation, the question was brought up, okay, so we're talking about what the Bible says about anxiety or worry. What are we going to do or when are we going to talk about depression? So, at that moment, I said, well, let's separate those two conversations out because those are both a conversation in themselves. So, if you think about worry worry and or anxiety, a lot of times a very close relative, maybe even a first cousin, is called depression. Now... How I want to kind of approach this is I want to look at a secular definition of depression and then I want to ask you where do we find a biblical definition of depression? So when we get there and I say, hey, where do we see depression in the Bible? I would My request is that you don't just pop off a name but that you say, hey, here's a passage or here's a story or that you can kind of share with us where you're getting it from. I have about five examples that I think that we see depression in the Bible. But like I said, um, I'm not trying to tell you where to start, so I'll open it up to you. And if we kind of hit an impasse, we kind of hit a a moment of silence, then we'll turn to some of these examples that I have. So when we think about a definition, maybe a secular definition, if you look up the word depression in a dictionary, you might see where it talks about a, a, a sad feeling. A despondent feeling could be a reduction in physiological vigor or activity, um, an extreme sadness. 
uh, poor concentration, a loss of appetite, a feeling of helplessness or hopelessness. So those would be some secular definitions. Now, you can go to places like the Mayo Clinic and they will have on their website, they will have ways or symptoms to help diagnose or to identify when you see depression. Um, the challenge there is is that for every website you will see possibly a different list of symptoms and a different list of ways to identify. And so as many different websites or as many different books you can come across, you can see a wide variety of how people identify, how people define depression. The National Institute of Mental Health back in 2021 released some findings, released some statistical data, and they claim that in 20 2021, there were 21 million adults that were identified as having at least one major episode or event of depression. The World World Health Organization, back in March of 2023, came out with a report that said worldwide, they are saying that over 280 million people deal with, or they call it, suffer from depression. And when you hear the word depression, especially in the secular, there is a wide variety of means of identifying it, a wide variety of means of defining it, a wide variety of means of addressing it. And so it's not just a one size fits all. If I have the measles, they will give me a medication directly for the measles. Depression can sometimes be a catch-all. And there are multiple number of medications that are prescribed to address depression. And if, um, and that is just a whole conversation um, to talk about the effectiveness, the non-effectiveness, the studies that are out there, and, and where that stuff trails off at. And the danger is, is that you or I, when we can start talking about depression, we get trapped or conformed to the secular definition and the secular idea, and therefore we base our biblical worldview off of a secular worldview, and that can be a danger and that can be a tripfall. So my goal tonight, just like we did with worry and anxiety a few weeks or a couple weeks ago, is to say, what does the Bible say about that? And let us develop a biblical picture on the subject and then let us interpret the secular through the biblical. Does that make sense? So instead of going to the secular and then interpreting the biblical, let's start with the biblical and then let's go to the secular. So that leads me to then ask the question, Given the nature of depression and given the prevalence of depression in our society and in our culture and the number of people that we know of or that we, maybe some, even some in this room, that have faced it or are dealing with it, what do we, what do, we do biblically and how do we approach this biblically in a way that is not condemning, in a way that is not judgmental, but in a way that is biblically based and biblically centered when it comes to the subject of depression. So, my question for us is, we think about maybe a secular definition, and that can be broad, and that can be very ambiguous, if you will. So then, what is a biblical picture, or where do we see depression maybe um, demonstrated 
in Scripture. Anybody have anything that pops out? Like I said, I've got four or five that, that I can think of, but does anybody have something that pops out that we can just... Job. The whole book of Job. I mean, look at that man. Come on. Okay, so... Yes. Okay, so then let's go. So go from 1 Samuel, let's go to Job. Job chapter 2. So you got 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. So I had listed that down, and in Job chapter 2. I was going to say Psalms first, but Job is a better example. Yes. So, so you got Job. And where I kind of zeroed in on is in Job chapter 2 in uh, verse... 12. So you think about depression, you think about an example or a picture we have of depression. The story, as we come into Job chapter 2, Job had how many sons and daughters? Anybody remember? Anybody remember how many he had? Huh? What did you say, Charles? Yeah, I was thinking it was ten, ten, that's right. So he had seven sons and three daughters. It says that in the first part of Job chapter 1. All right, He had a whole lot of camels, a whole lot of donkeys, a whole lot of sheep, a whole lot of oxen, a whole lot of a lot of stuff. Right? He had a lot of stuff. And then the story is, is that Satan is in the presence of God and... Um, and I don't want to be crass, and I don't want to be flippant, and I don't want to be disrespectful, but it was almost like Satan's God said, Hey, Satan, have you looked at Job? Job said, or Satan, or God said to Satan, Have you looked at Job? And then Satan's like, Yeah, but he has everything he could want, so that's why he praises you and serves you. And God said, Well, how about you take it from him, and we'll just, I'll prove to you that he serves me and is faithful to me because of me and not because of the stuff he has. So that's how the story is kind of set up. And so then Satan comes, and God allows Satan to take all the stuff away from Job. And at the end of Job chapter 2, um, you have Job. He has lost his seven sons. He has lost his three daughters. He has lost all of his animals, all of his, all of his possessions, and he is left with one opinionated wife. Bulls and sores. <laughs> and bulls and sores. But that's where he's left. And then he doesn't curse God. And then Satan goes back to God and God's like, nan nan boo boo, I told you so. And Satan's like, yeah, but you afflict his body and then he will turn on you. And then God's like, okay, try that. And so Satan goes and afflicts him. And so now he's got sores. Um, just the worst of the worst of the physical afflictions. It says he's sitting in an ash heap taking broken shards of pottery and scraping the sores to try to find relief because he is in such misery and agony. And so then he's got his wife and she's chewing on one ear and then it says in Job chapter 2 and verse 11, now he has three friends and when they heard about this, they then came to him and in verse 12 it says when they saw him from a distance they did not recognize him and they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven and then verse 13. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. And that's hard for me to imagine that Job is sitting there on the ground, got nothing left. Three friends show up, and they sit there for seven days and seven nights, and no one says a word. And then you get to Job chapter 3 and verse 1, and Job opens his mouth, and he says... 
Let the day, this is verse 3, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. And he goes on, and what he is denouncing, if you will, is the day of his birth. He's like, I wish I would have never have been born. His grief and his agony, his sorrow, his loss, his questions, the answers that he doesn't have. See, we have the benefit of being able to read through the entirety of this story. We know the conversation between God and Satan. We know what God does to Job at the very end of the book of Job when he blesses him and he gives him twofold of everything he had. We know how God answers the three friends plus the extra one and Job at the end of Job. We know all of that now. Job is sitting there having lost everything seven days and seven nights in complete silence and when he opens his mouth he has nothing. And he's questioning, why was I even born? There's loss of possessions. There's loss of his family. There is the sacrifice of his health. He's sitting there thinking, can it get any worse? I think that's a great example of the an example of depression and how we see it demonstrated. In scripture. Do you not think that his wife might have also been depressed? Sure. That's where, I mean, we always view her as this foolish woman, but she was experiencing everything he was experiencing, right? So we could accept the wills that, I mean, and that depression, that grief, in that grief and that depression, she's speaking out of that. Sure. Sure. But the the difference between those two is that she was willing to curse God and he wasn't. So yeah, I'm not faulting her and I'm not saying, oh, boo, hiss on her. Because she had just lost ten children. And she was in the same state of grief and loss and despair. I'm not throwing stones at her by any means. But, But yes, we see an example of depression. Give me another idea. Where do we see depression? First Kings, uh, Elijah. Uh huh. After uh, the issue with the the Uh huh. And then he ran from Jezebel. Right. Okay. Yes. So do you all remember that story? All right. So you get to First Kings chapter seventeen, and that is where Elijah predicts the drought. All right. And then you get to 1 Kings 18, and he's at Mount Carmel, and that's where you build the altar, and he soaks it down with water after he spent three years of the drought, and he prays to God, the fire comes down, and then they then they go out and they take vengeance on the 450 prophets of Baal, and they and they kill all of them, and then about that time, Jezebel, who um, this coming Wednesday is Ahab. Next Wednesday will be the next Wednesday will be Jezebel. So Jezebel heard, hears of it. She sends a message to Elijah and says, and this is going to be a First uh, Kings nineteen. Is that what you're at, Miss Donna? So in First Kings nineteen says in verse two, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, "So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow." And then in verse three it says, "Then he was afraid and arose." And ran for his life. And then he gets down to the cave and he's hiding out down there. And God comes to him and says, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
Now you and I read this and go, yeah, what are you doing there, Elijah? I mean, you were just, three years ago you said it wouldn't rain, do or rain, and it didn't happen. Now three years later, you stand down Ahab and 450 prophets of Baal. You prayed, fire came down and licked up the water, the stone, the wood, everything. By the word, by Elijah's prophecy, all that happened. And then a woman said that she was going to get revenge on you and you took off scared. And that's where you get down there in in, uh, 1 Kings 19 and uh, God um, comforts Elijah and reminds Elijah that yes, I am still present and I am still very real and you are not alone. That's good. What about Moses? Okay, where do you see Moses? Where he ends up at the well running. Okay. Where's that at? You don't know? You don't know? So do you think you see depression there in Exodus? You think so? I'm assuming you probably do because that's why you brought it up. So, Okay, so, so you would be saying uh, la, 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 Exodus chapter 2, Harold? Is that what you're talking about? So when he flees to Midian? Yes. Okay. And so you're down there uh, verse 16. Is that where you start at? <laughs> okay. Alright, so he's on the run. Uh, Pharaoh is seeking his life because he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. He lands there in the land of Midian and Jethro has a bunch of daughters. Seven daughters there in verse 16. They come to water their father's flocks. The other shepherds in the area drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Okay. Maybe a picture of depression that we have there. I'm not sure about where it's found, but the woman with the blood issue that touched the hem of Jesus' garment, she would have had depression issues for weeks and 12 years. But I'm not sure where it's at in the Bible, so okay. forgive me. That's all right. <laughs> all right. We'll go back to 1 Samuel. Go back to 1 Samuel 16. And let's look at why your why your brains are thinking. Let me just kind of make a case where we see some of these at in Scripture. Saul has been anointed as the first king of Israel, right? First king of the Jewish people. Um, God says, go and destroy, completely destroy the Amalekites. Saul goes to destroy the Amalekites, but doesn't destroy them completely as God has said. He kept the best animals alive, kept the best servants alive. Says, comes back to Samuel, says, we did everything that God told us to. Samuel says, well, what's the bleeding of the sheep that I hear and the lowing of the lambs? He said, uh, you didn't do everything that God said. Saul's like, oh, well, the people did that. And Samuel's like, whoa, hold up, stop. And he said, because you did not completely obey the voice of the Lord and not did not completely do what God said to do, God has rejected you as being the king over Israel and he is going to select someone else. So that is why in 1 Samuel 16, you see the selection of David, except for you get to verse 14 and there is this picture. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And then if you go on to the story of Saul, then Saul then, um, in my opinion, goes into a state of depression. Now there's questions, there's all kinds of questions. Well, did God cause it? Was that a demon possession? 
where I lean, and I mean lean because I'm not telling you definitively where I lean, it wasn't a demonic oppression. It was just God took his hand of favor. God took his blessing off of him and brought conviction and guilt upon his life. And from 1 Samuel 16, 14, all the way through the end of Saul's life until he dies at the hand of the Philistines, he never repents for his sin. He says, I have sinned, but you never see him repent to God. He never tries to do anything to atone or take responsibility for his sin. And so in verse 14, you see this harmful spirit begins to torment him. And what that tormenting then produces is bouts of irrational agitation. David's not there for supper one night. He's mad. He starts calling his son Jonathan all kinds of names. He tries to throw the spear and kill David. He does a a, a whole list of irrational things. He's anger. He's bitter. He's in despair. I would argue that we see him in a what we would consider today in our secular standards as a state of depression. Now, what I want to do here is I just kind of want to look at these and then we're going to spend the second part asking the question, trying to dissect that from a maybe analytical point about where do these depressions come from. So, 1 Samuel 16. Then let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 30. There's another piece, another picture of this depression that I think that we see um, here. Has to do with David. Yes, ma'am. Can I throw in one more? Yes, ma'am. I'm not sure, but uh, many, many, many years ago, we did a Bible study entitled, Oh, Woe is Me, Jeremiah. Wasn't he depressed when he was thrown in the well and doing other things? Yes, ma'am. And, and that he's next. He's next. Yes, ma'am. We're going to get there. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, 1 Samuel 30. Um, the context of the story where you're coming into 1 Samuel 30 is David's been anointed as king. Problem is, is that Saul is still king. And David is unwilling to go and depose Saul. He's not willing to go and defeat Saul, kill Saul, harm Saul. He says, when God's ready for me to be king, God will take him out and put me in his place. Well, Saul realizes that David's been anointed as king. So now Saul says, well, to keep David from being king, I need to kill David, right? So then he begins this process of trying to kill David. He's chasing him throughout the countryside. He is sending people to try to find him, to bring him to him. He has tried to get people to turn him in and to report about his whereabouts. Saul has done all of this. So at one point, David's like, you know what? I'm tired of running from you all around the area of Israel. I know I'm going to run to the Philistines. And when I'm at the Philistines, because the Philistines and the Israelites are enemies, then you won't come find me at the Philistines because those are your enemies and you won't cross the border. You may say, well, then how did David go to the Philistines? Well, when he got to the Philistines, the Philistines are like, what are you doing here? And he starts acting like he's crazy. He starts acting like he's dumb. And they're just like, not only is he an enemy of Saul, and they knew that, but now he acts like a madman, and they're just like, whatever. Just let him be. Let let him just do his thing. So he is residing, a Jew residing in the area of the Philistines and so you get to chapter 29 and he decides he's going to go out and fight with the Philistines against Saul and the Jewish people. 
They get up there, the rest of the Philistine commanders are like, there is no way we're letting this guy fight with us because he might turn on us and stab us in the back while we're fighting the Israelites. So they say, go back to where you were. So David and his men turned to return back to Ziklag, which is where they were staying. And on the way back... It says the Amalekites. I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. About halfway through the verse. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag, and they had come and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. So David is away with all of his mighty men. While they're gone, the Amalekites come in. And remember, the Amalekites were the ones that God had told Saul to completely wipe out. Saul didn't completely wipe them out. And so now David's having to deal with them. So when David comes back to Ziklag, his wife, wives, and his children, and the men that are with him, their wives, and their children, the possessions, they've been taken. So what do they do? Do they get mad and say, rah, 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 let's go beat up the guys? No. It said that they were then mad at David. This is verse 6. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. So this idea that David is sitting there and his wives have been taken, his children have been taken, his possessions have been taken, his mighty men that were running with him are now turned against him and now they're mad at him and he's in distress and he's in sorrow and it says there that he was greatly Distressed. Depression. Maybe as we might define it in today's time, a state of depression. Miss Granny said, Jeremiah, so go to Jeremiah chapter 38. Jeremiah chapter 38. Keep turning in your right to Jeremiah chapter 38. Granny talked about the cistern. So the story behind the cistern in 1 Samuel chapter or in Jeremiah 38 is that Jeremiah is prophesying on behalf of God. And the story was is that all the people in Jerusalem they had rebelled against God and they were living disobedient to the commands of the word of God. So God says, Jeremiah, you go tell them unless they straighten up, I'm going to send the enemies and I'm going to take them captive and I'm going to destroy their property and I'm going to destroy their homeland and we will just wipe them out and haul them off to exile. Jeremiah goes and tells them and they're like, no, we don't think we're going to listen to you and they keep doing silly stuff and then the enemy shows up. As the enemy shows up and starts to oppress him, then they get mad at Jeremiah because they're like, Jeremiah, hush, because Jeremiah is going, God said he was going to do this, and God said this is how he's going to do this, and you need to listen to God, and so they're mad at him because he is the voice of God in their lives, and so they decide, and they throw him down to this pit, and he's down in this pit, that is uh, chapter 38, and then they pull him out of the pit, okay, and so he's been down in this pit, Uh, That is verse 7 all the way down to verse 13 of Jeremiah chapter 38. He's been in this pit and it gives us this indication that when they threw him in this pit, it was a dried out cistern. He sunk down at least to his arms pit and he's in the mud and he's just sitting there. We don't know exactly how many days, but he's in there. Can't get out, just in the mud. Now let's let's just picture, you're in there for 24 hours. 
Can you imagine the things that go through your mind as you're just stuck in the mud for 24 hours? The things that Satan does to play with your mind, the way that Satan comes in and just cranks down on your spirit and your heart and your attitude. Well, as the story goes on, verse 13 of chapter 38, it says they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and then Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So that is kind of, you think about, that's kind of the setup. And then, verse 14, King Zedekiah, so he's in charge of this whole circus, sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question, hide nothing from me. So the king says, I've got a question for you, don't lie to me. Verse 15, And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Sometimes when you get around people and they are in a state of depression, it's like it doesn't matter what you say, it's always Eeyore off Winnie the Pooh. Right? It's always gray skies. It's always just negative, negative, negative. Or you remember the old hee-haw, right? Gloom and despair and agony, oh my. I mean, sometimes you get around people and you're like, the sun is shining. It's not shining bright enough. Well, it's a beautiful day. Not going to be all day. I mean, no matter what you do, they get in this state. And so when you think about Jeremiah, Jeremiah is looking at the king. The king is like, I've got a question. You would think Jeremiah would be like, great. Well, someone please listen to me. But Jeremiah looks at him and goes, I ain't saying nothing. Either you're going to kill me or you're going to ignore me. Why should I say anything else? You ever been around those kind of people? It's like all they do is suck out any kind of emotion. They suck out any kind of enthusiasm, any kind of excitement. They suck out all the life of their the, the surroundings around them. All they're doing is constantly negative, negative, negative. Well, that's what Jeremiah's doing. And you and I can go, oh, Jeremiah, you're supposed to be happy and cheerful. No, he's not. At one point, they starve him. Another point, they put him in the stocks, you know, where they put his hands and they put his head in there and he's stuck in those two bars and they leave him there. Another point, he's beaten. Another point, he's thrown in the cistern. Why? Because all he was doing was saying, this is what God said to do. And then when all this stuff was coming out, he's like, remember, this is what God said. Turn and repent to God. And nobody would listen to Jeremiah. He was foretelling the the destruction of Jerusalem, but all he was was ignored, dismissed, and then persecuted. Why? For saying, this is what the God... This is what God says. A great example of where we see a man that has depression in the Bible. Some may say, well, that's just just crazy. You go get in a pit for a few days and let's see where you're at. Yes, sir. Joseph. Joseph, yes. Yes. Brothers. Scandalous. 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 Yes. He's the Pharaoh's wife. Yes. Everybody was against him. Yes. The prodigal son. Okay. He came back. You know he had to be depressed, losing everything, and then had to be ashamed to go back to his dad because he knew that the dad took better care of his servants than what he was doing. He lost everything or he squandered everything? Squandered everything. Okay, I like, I like that word better. But he still was depressed after that I would, I would think a Jewish boy in the pig pen would cause a state of blues. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So the one about Mary. The one about Mary. 
depressed because their son was just crucified. Sure. Yes. What about Jesus? So where do we see? Where where would you say we'd see that at? Because I I had thought about where do, where would we see depression in the life of Jesus? Anxiety, sweat, blood. Okay, but is that depression? When he went up to Mount Olives and prayed. Okay. Maybe forty days and forty nights of temptation. Okay. Do you think that would be depression? I would imagine it would be. Uh, I think he's beyond that. I, I would have to agree because if it says Jesus has gone through everything right. we've gone through, uh-huh. wouldn't that be part of the, yeah. the temptation thing if he went through everything we did too? Where does it say that at, that he's gone through everything? Well, he goes through what we go through. He understands God knows our struggle. Where in order to understand someone's struggle, you've either had to gone through something similar or you've had to walk miles. But where do you where do you where do you where are you referencing? When he went, went to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, you said that he, he has faced everything we faced. Well, yeah. If he was tempted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, then I'm sure he was thrown every temptation or every feeling that we feel left. I mean, I'm in the desert by myself for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm going to get depressed at some point. So Hebrews 4 through 6 is where it talks about yeah. he's faced every temptation as we have. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I just you trying to give me a hard time. No, I'm just yes. I'm just seeing if we're just making sure we're on the same page. Okay. So we didn't have or that plant, that jerky. <laughs> or having that jerky. Jacob. Right. Okay. All right. There's another example that I want us to look at, and that's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So what I'm going to do is we're going to look at this one as kind of the last one, and then um, as quickly as possible, I want to go back through the ones at least that I had written down just because I would had a chance to process. And, and I just kind of want to evaluate what we can learn about maybe that example of depression. Now there's other ones that you have brought up and they, and I'm not saying they're bad, I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm just saying that I really haven't had the same amount of time to kind of ponder and consider and to look at them. So let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and then let's go back and look at some of these these ones that I had written down. I really want us to get to the point where we ask ourselves to try to analyze the picture of depression. So you get 2 Timothy and it's Paul. Okay? So Excuse me. So Paul is writing. He wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, among other books in the New Testament. But you get to the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, most people assume that this is the last letter that he writes. The last thing that Paul writes before he is beheaded is 2 Timothy. Most people assume and believe, and a lot of commentators will tell you, that he is most likely in Rome awaiting execution. Most likely he is in prison. And most likely, this is not as you go through the book of Acts and you think, oh, it's been a couple of years. No, this has been years, decades, from when you had the Damascus Road conversion in Acts chapter 9. It has now been decades. Maybe he had the, the conversion when he, let's say, hypothetically, he's 35. Some would say now it's been 50 years later. Okay, So he has gone through the three missionary journeys. He has spent years at Corinth. He has spent years at Ephesus. He's gone around. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 or chapter 11 and it talks about the shipwrecks and the beatings and the stonings and all the things that he has endured. And so now as he's writing to Timothy, it's like his final farewell 
to Timothy. And you get in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and you listen to verse 9 and listen to what Paul writes. And just listen to his, his state of mind. He says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. It's this idea that Paul is saying, here I am. I am advanced, old in years. I'm tired. I'm imprisoned. I'm cold. I have no money. I have no possessions. I feel like I'm going to die here. This person has abandoned me. This person has turned against me. When I was put on trial, no one would stand for me. This person is gone. That person's gone. And when he writes to Timothy, he just says back up there in uh, verse 13, Would you please bring me something to keep me warm physically? And would you please bring me something to read to warm, to warm my soul spiritually? And you would think, well, hold up a second. This is the same Paul that for the last 40 years has been faithful to the Lord. Yes. This is the same Paul that was responsible for the entire known Greek world to have heard about Jesus. Yes. This was the same Paul that had been credited with writing the majority of the New Testament. Yes. And yet he is, in the final stages of life, alone, Tired, sad, and I think there's some hinges, some twinges of depression in his voice. Sometimes we think Paul was the rock star, Paul was the famous guy, Paul always had it easy until we start thinking about Paul's life and then we start realizing, um, I don't think any of us would want to line up to be Paul. So I bring up these questions about depression, not to say, oh, see, it's there, so therefore that leaves us an excuse or a way out. What I really want us to do is to just ask the question, I know I'm short on time, but just ask the question, how do we biblically consider these pictures of depression? So let's, let's, just, let's just start here with Paul. And I'm asking three questions, three questions that you might find useful, you may not find useful at all. But three questions that I'm asking myself when I see depression, when I see it demonstrated in the Bible, I'm asking three questions. What was the cause of the depression? What was the lesson that we can learn from the depression? And then what was the cure that we see biblically for the depression? Because when we, we know of people or when we personally face seasons of depression, there's a cause, this is just my opinion, there's a cause for the depression, there's a lesson to be learned or a lesson that we can learn or others can learn through depression, and then there's a cure, there's a hope, there is some type of help 
that God then gives us. Why do I think that? Because of what I see in Scripture. When I see these instances or these models of depression, I see there's a cause, there's a lesson, there's a cure. Now, what are we? What, what, what am I talking about when I come to Paul? What is the cause for Paul's depression? Well, I would say it's because he has been following Jesus and there is a cost of following Jesus. So the cost of following Jesus is that sometimes you choose Jesus over you choose desires. Sometimes you choose Jesus over you choose what is comfortable and what is easy. Sometimes when you choose Jesus, that puts you at odds. And so the cause of Paul's depression was that this was the cost of following Jesus. He was alone. He was in prison. All he had was Luke. It was getting cold. He had nothing to read. And you say, well, so you're there not because of any wrong on his part, but because that was just part of the price of being faithful to the Lord. So then what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is that it may not get easier. You know, we just assume that as life, as we get older in life, that it's going to get easier in life. Not always. It doesn't. That's right. It doesn't always get easier. But sometimes we assume. Sometimes, I mean, you got some students that are up there in that youth room, and I bet you the majority of them would think, well, you know what? I'm going to go out. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get some possessions. I'm going to amass a certain amount of wealth and a certain amount of fortune. And then I'm going to get to the point in my life that I'm going to retire. I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to have everything I want. Where do we get that from in the Bible? There's, there's a man in this community that's dealing with an advanced stage of cancer. Just a couple weeks ago when I'm talking to him. He's mad. Why is he mad? He's mad because he finally got to the stage of life where he could enjoy the fruits of he and his wife's labor for the last 30 years and now he is wrecked with a cancer that is not only draining his physical life, but it's draining everything around him. And he said, just to the point where I can start enjoying all the things that I've spent my life trying to accomplish and now I'm wrecked with this sickness. And sometimes the lesson for us is it might not get easier. And so you get in that state of depression and you look at Paul and you say, well, Paul, why are you depressed? Is it your fault or is it someone else's fault? No, it is just these are the ebbs and the flows. They said that Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Peaches, a couple of centuries ago, that he dealt with mighty battles of depression back and forth. D.L. Moody was t- talked about dealing with depression. They even say Billy Graham battled with depression because those ebbs and flows. And it wasn't necessarily because of something they did wrong. It was just the natural ebb and flow. But what was the cure? What was the cure? Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 4 or 2 Timothy 4 says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So what was the cure for the depression that Paul was facing? To understand that the source of his hope and his strength was not himself. And it was not a vice. And it was not a man-made solution. The source and hope and the strength of his continuing to work through this state of depression was his trust on God. And it's trusting in what God said. Jeremiah, we see the same kind of example through Jeremiah. We see Jeremiah, he's proclaiming God's word. So that was the cause that put him in the place he was at. 
the lesson that you can learn from Jeremiah is that when you are dealing with lost people that act like lost people, their sin and the rebellion, they do not want to have it shown. This is John uh, 3 verses 19 through 20. They don't like when the light exposes their sin and they hate the light and do not come to the light lest their work should be exposed. And so they will lash out and they will oppose and they will persecute you. And sometimes that will come and you and I may get in that moment and we may say, all I was doing was what God told me to do and here I am. Woe, poor is me. Think about Job. What was the cause of his depression? It was the loss. It was the grief. People can relate to that, can't we? Physical loss of a loved one, a family member, a parent. That causes a certain amount of grief. It can cause a certain amount of depression. And in Job's example... It was a means for an opportunity to test him. Job, where's your hope? Job, who's your Savior? Job, where are you going to depend? Job, what are you going to do? The same thing with, da- the same thing with David. David is there in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And they got back to Ziklag. All the people were mad at him because all the things were taken. All the things were gone. And it said they had talked of stoning him. And they were sorely upset at him. And it says that he was greatly distressed. And then you look down in verse 7. And it said, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. What was the cause of David's depression? It was the loss. The loss of his family. The loss of the ones he loved. His children were gone. And he's sitting there saying, God, I'm the anointed one, and why is life so hard? You ever find yourself having the blues or having the downs because life just seems like every time you get a little bit of a foothold, then here comes another kick in the teeth. Sometimes that can put us in a state of being down or a state of depression because life is hard. Life is unplanned many times. And the fickleness of man has a way of constantly getting you and I to think, what is the hope? What is the purpose? What is the reason why I am doing this? And what did David do? He strengthened himself in the Lord. So you see the cause, and that was his family and his possessions being taken. The lesson was, hey, don't just trust the opinion of man and the fickleness of man and what was the cure was to dwell with God. It said he strengthened himself in the Lord. He felt himself be in a state of blues, what we might consider to be a state of depression. And he got with Jesus. Not Jesus, he got with God. He got with God, he got close with God, and he stayed with God. And so these examples, when we see them, we see that there was something that caused the depression There was something that was there available for them to learn about or through the depression. And then we also see where God gave them an opportunity to have hope or help or a cure in the depression. One last place that I want to show you. Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. Where is Lamentations at? Well, if you were in Jeremiah, keep going to the right. You got Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then you'll get into Ezekiel. It's very easy to miss Lamentations because Lamentations in most of your Bibles is only about two, maybe three pages. All right? But Lamentations chapter 3. One of these days, we are going to uh, work through Lamentations on a Sunday morning. All right. 
I think Lamentations is the textbook on how we deal with grief, how we deal with loss, and how we deal with many of the ailments that this society would try to say that we need a prescription for. The Bible gives us a spiritual remedy for. So we think about these examples of depression. We think about that in these examples, we see a cause, we see a lesson, we see a cure in many of them. So that kind of leads me to ask the question, so is depression real? Yes. Yes. Okay. Can depression be an opportunity? Yes. Yes. Okay. In this state of depression, is the Christian helpless? No. Okay. In this state of depression, is the Christian hopeless? No. Okay. I agree. My point is, is that you go to a secular, you go to a lot of secular thinking and you will get different answers in secular thinking. So then how do we as a church, how do we as Christians then respond to those around us or even ourselves? How do we respond when we are in facing those, dealing with those, going through those moments of depression? How do we respond? Pray about everything. Okay. I would encourage you to go to Lamentations 3. Now, I'm only going to read verse 1 down through 26. But, like I said, it is just a textbook. A lot of times we don't go to it because a lot of times we're not familiar with it. A lot of times you get into it and you just kind of like, I don't get it. And you just move on. But here's here's the setup. Jeremiah has written about the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming. That's what the book of Jeremiah is about. He's saying this is what's going to happen. Then, as the pagans are coming in and destroying Jerusalem, Jeremiah is at a distance and he's watching the destruction of his homeland. He's watching the annihilation of his people. He's watching the uh, capture, the mistreatment of his, his, his countrymen and his kindred. And he's watching this and he is lamenting before God and saying, Oh God, how could this happen? And that's where Lamentations comes from. It's a lament from him to God saying, Woe is us. So listen to the language in Lamentations and listen to verse 1. And he is going to describe his attitude. And I think it is a textbook definition of a person with the blues. It says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, He shuts up my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent His bow and set me as a target for His arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of His quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples. The object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my 
affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down, bowed down within me. He is writing this lament and saying, this is how I feel. This is where I'm at in my state. This is where I'm at in my spirit. This is where I feel like God has put me. And he's being honest and he's being transparent and going, I just feel like I've got nothing left. And there are people that you will get in those seasons of life where it feels like everything is dark, that you have no light, and that the pressure of this life is bearing down upon you, and it almost feels like it is a burden to try and breathe. Verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So in the first 20 verses, it is gloom, despair, and agony on mine. Life cannot get any darker. Life cannot get any worse. Verse 21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He said, But what did He change? Listen to what verse 21 says. What changed in Jeremiah's life? Was it his circumstances? It was his mind. He changed his mind. He changed his focus. He changed the direction, the posture of his heart. I'm not dismissing depression, and I'm not saying just get over it. I'm saying the... the, quicksand of depression is that it keeps you turned inward. And so many times biblically speaking the solution is not when we stay inward but when we turn upward. So what does he say? This I call the mind and therefore I have hope. Verse 22 The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah says, I am in this state. But the posture of my heart and the state of my spirit is not determined by my external circumstances. The posture of my heart and the state of my spirit should be more determined by my Creator instead of my circumstances. So what did He do in verse 21? He changed His mind. So then how should we respond? The way that I think about it... (laughs) I realize that most of you are like, oh, Spence never has a bad day. Oh, Spence got no problems. No, nothing to worry about. I just, But there's times, right? There's times that you just feel like all day long you've been walking backwards. All day long you've been doing the moonwalk. I mean, there's, that, there's those times in life. Especially as you're raising teenage boys. I mean, there's that time in life that you just feel like here we are. Here we are. So here's how I think about it. You get down. What do you mean? You get down on your knees. When you feel those seasons of depression, that darkness coming in, when you feel yourself feeling in and in, in just the attitude of despair, you get down. You get down on your knees and you get down to petition the Lord. You get down and you get low. You humble your heart. You cannot fix yourself. We can't fix ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. And as much as we would like to think... 
Man cannot fix the afflictions of the soul. And in my opinion, when it comes to this state of depression, it is an affliction of the soul. And it's not a man-made solution or a man-made cure. You get down on your knees. You get low and you humble yourself before God because you know that your help and your hope comes before the Lord. You get down, you get low, and you get desperate. Because as long as you think that you're the answer or as long as you think you're going to bounce out of it or as long as you think that you just fix it on your own, the longer you stay. And you know the old adage, the difference between a rut and a grave is just a matter of inches. And sometimes we'll get in that rut in life and we will just get there and we will stay there and it's not because we don't want to get out of it. It's because of the fact that sometimes we need help, encouragement from other people. Sometimes we just need to just spend some time with the Lord, focus on God and there's sometimes that there's lessons that He's wanting to teach us through it and to see us be faithful in it. But you get down, you get low, you get desperate. And you just cry out and say, God, here I am. You see my state, you know where I'm at, and you repeat the words of Jeremiah, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. We have hope in who God is. We have hope in the goodness of God. We have hope in the blessings of God. We have hope in the timing of God. We have hope in the providence of God. We have hope. You go back to where Anne was at earlier and Job. Job was sitting there seven days and seven nights, hadn't seen anything. He had no idea weeks later, months later, years later, that God would restore everything back to him. Last Monday, we did the funeral service here for Don Chester. 23 years ago, I was working on that man's job as a young, younger (laughs) punk kid. And if you would have said 23 years from now, you're going to be helping with his funeral service. I was like, you're crazy. You have no idea what you're talking about. We have no idea about the timing of God. So when we get in those states or when other people around us get in those states, and I think they will come. And we... And you're in that moment where it, it's almost like it's hard to breathe because of the weight of everything around you. I'm not saying pie in the sky. I'm not saying just get over it. I'm not saying it's not real. What I'm saying is, is that I believe, based upon the sufficiency of God's Word, that God offers hope. And God offers help. And that, the depression that comes in our lives, is more so a malady of the soul and not a diagnosis to be cured with a pill or a pharmaceutical pharmaceutical measure. I think it's a I think it's a, an affliction of the soul. So how do we deal with the afflictions of the soul? We go, we go to the Bible. We go to God. And we go to the Spirit. And we get down, we get low, and we get desperate. And we say, God, help me. I don't know if that might help, but when we think about depression, we think about anxiety, I hope that we will think about what is the biblical picture, what is the biblical definition, and then let that inform how we look at the world around us. Ideas, thoughts, pushbacks? Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way 
and we look forward to being with you next time.